Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Recorded live. Hello and welcome everybody to another broadcast on Grand Design Exposed talk show platform Hour of the Truth. Today we have Thursday, March 26th, 2015. And um, the broadcast is called that we are doing a third part on the Catholic Lutheran Accord, reading the paper that Richard Bennett uh, made on the subject on the Joint Declaration on Justification, as we have done two times before. But before that, I first want to tell you, uh, of course, we have uh, two guests here. Walt Stickel is listening, and he is the one that I have to say thank you for setting up the call. And uh, my second guest who will be online with me and discussing the subject that I will bring to the table is Tom Fress. Hello, Tom. How are you doing? Hi, Eric, and uh, good evening to all your listeners. Nice to be with you. I was looking very much forward to this broadcast today, not only because it is the third part of the Catholic Lutheran Accord that is very uh, vital, I would even say, to people who call themselves Protestants. And you know, as I know, that the most of the people, when you talk to them in the streets and you ask them if they are Protestants and they say yes, and then you ask them, so what are you protesting? They don't even have an answer. of what they are protesting. And that is, of course, because the Roman Catholic Church has been working mostly through Vatican II between 1962 and 1965 on the ecumenical movement by bringing all the so-called apostate churches, apostate, of course, from the uh, synagogue of Satan, back under the wings of Rome. And this Catholic Lutheran Accord that we are discussing is a major step in that direction because in 1999, the Catholic Lutheran, uh, the Catholic Lutheran, I say, uh, the Lutheran Worldwide Federation signed together with the uh, Catholic Church this agreement, and by that officially said that the protest is over, as Tony Palmer, the Bishop of uh, Kenneth Copeland Ministries, stated in the video that we have been spoken about in earlier uh, broadcasts here and in all earlier broadcasts under the name of Nothing of the uh, Nothing but the Truth. Yeah. And uh, you just have to look up my videos on my YouTube channel, Jogler66. Um, look up the videos of uh, Nothing But The Truth, and there you will see how we got into that, and you can inform yourself about that, because we don't go into that today, of course. But before we start uh, reading the Joint Declaration of Justification, the paper that Richard Bennett made, and I'm, we're all very grateful for him to do that, Before we do that, first let me repeat the motto of our show, Hour of the Truth, because I received a comment on my YouTube channel when I uploaded uh, part one or part two of this series um, that he didn't understand who is they that we are addressed in our motto. So the motto of the show, Hour of the Truth, is that Rome never changes. They used to call us heretics and sent the Inquisition to kill us. Today they call us terrorists and send out their crusades. 
Times and methods may have changed. The goal still stays the same. Extirpate the remnant of the true word of God, Bible-believing people who uphold the truth in Jesus Christ's name. End quote. So who are they? They are, of course, the synagogue of Satan, the Roman Catholic Church, the hierarchy of the papacy, the Antichrist, the biblical, historical, and prophetic Antichrist. They used to call us heretics, by the way, us meaning everybody who fell away from the so-called mother universal church. And in the time of the Dark Ages, they sent the Inquisition. Not only the Spanish Inquisition, but the Inquisition was all over Europe to kill the so-called heretics. Today, they call us terrorists, among a lot of other people, because we are, here on the broadcast, fundamental Bible believers. We do not accept any other doctrine than the Word of God alone, as it is preserved in the 1611 King James Version Bible. And if you cannot agree with that, and you want to discuss with us on that, well, I can only say today I made a comment on one of my latest videos where I say we take the KGV as our basis, and if you do not agree with us, then you don't have to listen to us. You can go to other people who want to make more money, want to make more friends, want to make maybe even uh, amendments to their belief. We do not do that. And uh, I think by that, there is said enough about this terrorist stuff and the heretic stuff and what the Roman Catholic Church does not all do to get rid of us. They have tried for 2,000 years and they will try until the time that Christ comes again. And you will need to stand up because if you don't and you go back under the wings of Rome, you will probably not have eternal life with Jesus Christ because you deny him. And that is what the Roman Catholic Church already does and already did all through the years. That's why we made the series The Characteristics of Antichrist. 11 videos, for the moment there are only 4 uploaded of this series, but more will, will be coming. And you can go to my channel Juggler66 and watch these videos and you will understand that there is and has never been any other identification of the beast, of the woman riding the beast of Revelation 17 than the papacy and nobody else than the Pope fulfilling all criterias to be the Antichrist of the world, the man of sin, the little horn, the man of perdition. And I don't know what all names I can <laughs> I can't mention yet. Sometimes it's too much. But we will go into a few articles now that I want to read before we start um, our broadcast on the Joint Declaration of Justification. And um, the first article is from the Breaking Israel News and is titled, The Jewish Temple Altar Rebuilt, Ready for Use. And this is a very, a very, very important in the times that we are living in, that we here on our call expose the rebuilding of a Jewish temple, and of course also the altar that will be used in the temple, as the fulfillment of the denial of the completely by Jesus Christ fulfilled 70th week of Daniel when he had the angel telling him 
of the 70-week prophecy. And Jesus Christ fulfilled that completely. Also, therefore, you can go to my YouTube channel and watch the video, Nothing But the Truth, The Greatest Deception Since the Garden of Eden. And there's a wonderful explanation of Daniel chapter 9, verses 23 to 27. And when you understand that, you will understand why we are living in the world that we are living in today, because this is nothing else, but they put us back in the 69 weeks, preparing for the so-called 70th week, because the Roman Catholic Church teaches a gap theory between the 69 weeks and the final 70th week. Enough. I want to start with a quote, because the article starts with a quote from the Bible, from Exodus uh, chapter 40, verse 29, but uh, they do not cite the King James Bible. I will read it to you anyway, and you can put up the King James next to it and then see where the differences are. But the quote is, And the altar of burnt offering he set at the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered upon it burnt offering and the meal offering, as the Lord commanded Moses. End quote. The Temple Institute in Jerusalem has announced that it has finished building an altar suitable for the temple service. The altar, which took several years to build, can be operational at little, uh, at little more than a moment's notice, reported Matzaf Haruak magazine. The Temple Institute is committed to preparing all the necessary clothing and tools for the rebuilt Holy Temple in Jerusalem. In addition, the Institute operates an educational center for visitors and a preparatory training program for members of the priestly family who wish to be ready to serve as soon as the temple is rebuilt. The altar is a central component to the biblical sacrificial service. In fact, there were separate altars for the incense and for other sacrifices. The larger altar set in the outer courtyard of the tabernacle and later the temple. It was approximately 5 meters or 16 feet tall and 16 meters or 52 and a half feet wide, with four horns or raised corners and a ram. I'm going to tell you right now, these measurements are not just because they later changed the, uh, put an additional article in their paper where they gave the right measurements. And um, I will provide these uh, in another link. So. Um, don't make a big point of, of the false reading of these measurements right here because they have changed and we can go into that later if you want to see that. Now continue reading. According to the Bible, the altar may not be made out of stones hewn by metal implements. The altar prepared by the Temple Institute under the direction of architect Rabbi Shmuel Balsam follows this requirement. It is constructed instead from bricks fired at roughly 1,000 degrees Celsius or 1,832 degrees Fahrenheit to withstand the immense heat of the temple's eternal flame and weight of the sacrificial animals. Its measurements conform the interpretation of Maimonides. What makes the altar so unique is that it can be disassembled and reassembled easily, allowing it to be transported quickly and efficiently from its current location on display at the Institute to the Temple Mount when the time comes. It was inaugurated in December 2014 and is now ready for use. With Passover around the corner and the Passover sacrifice a central component to the traditional celebration, perhaps that time will come soon. Yes, Passover. Uh, 
a fortnight we still have to go, and then this feast is coming up, right, Tom? Yes, it's uh, coming up soon, but uh, look, we uh, we read and understand God's holy word, the King James Version of the Bible, and in it, it clearly states that God no longer dwells in temples made with hands. And clearly, the Jews, in their desire to build a temple, in their desire to build an altar, and to resume animal sacrifices, is an abomination. And once again, by their actions, the Jews are proving that they do not accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah and as their sacrificial lamb. And what is the most depressing about it all is that most of the Christian world expects that somehow, somehow God is going to use this temple and these animal sacrifices to redeem the Jews. When history clearly reflects that when Jesus offered his life on the altar, on the cross, and bore our sins upon his body and became sin for us and redeemed us to God, reconciled us to God, that the Jews who did not receive him did not accept him as their Messiah, had only one option, but that was to return to Temple Mount Worship. And isn't it funny that at the very time when Jesus offered up himself a sacrifice, the high priest of Israel was ready to go into the temple to make sacrifice for all of Israel, And what would he have found when he walked into the temple? He would have found the veil ripped ripped from top to bottom. He would have found the Holy of Holies completely exposed. And how at that point could the priest continue? He couldn't. By the very act of ripping that veil that hung in the doorway between the holy place and the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, with that veil ripped in twain from top to bottom, simply stated that there was no more sacrifice for sin. At that point, Israel was given a choice. You either receive the lamb that God provided, the perfect sacrifice, the once and for all, all time, all sufficient sacrifice in Christ Jesus, or you go without a sacrifice. And Jesus also said in the temple, uh, said of the temple before his crucifixion, he said, your house, speaking of the temple, he said, your house is left unto you desolate. In other words, God no longer dwells in that temple. It's not God's temple. It's your your temple, your house. And it's desolate. God no longer dwells there. And it's confirmed later in the scriptures that 
God no longer dwells in temples made with hands. Anyone who is familiar with God's holy word must ask himself, why is there so much concern and hope that the Jews will rebuild the temple and begin animal sacrifices again? When basic, basic biblical understanding dictates that God is not going to honor those sacrifices. God is not going to dwell in that temple. So why is the whole Christian world concerned about the Jews building a temple and offering animal sacrifices again so that they may eat and drink damnation to themselves in an abject demonstration that they still reject the Lamb of God. It's, it's mind-boggling. You know, I grew up in the so-called Protestant churches, and they were all concerned, they were all hopeful of a day that would soon succeed the, the reestablishment of the Jewish homeland, they called it, in 1948. That somehow God would allow them to build a temple again and begin animal sacrifices. And what a day that would be. To see the Jews finally come to the redemption of Christ. But I, I cannot believe that it didn't dawn on me even then. What a horror. What a horror it is to see Jews building a temple and to resume animal sacrifices. It can be described as nothing other but an abject rejection of Christ. I repented of it. God opened my eyes. There's redemption for the Jews, but that redemption is in the one time all-sufficient shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And if they had any knowledge of it, they wouldn't think to build a temple. They wouldn't think to build an altar. And they certainly wouldn't think to be slaying animals as if that had anything to do with their salvation. It's uh, something of which I'm ashamed to admit that I believed for nearly 50 years of my life that there was somehow, some, some way God was going to use this so-called rebuilt temple and the resumption of animal sacrifices to reveal himself one more time to the Jews. But I don't see it anymore. And my heart just grieves. My heart just grieves when I think of the consequences of this delusion. You know, the Jews, the Israelites brought us the oracles of God. They brought us God's law. And out of that separated bloodline out of the seed of Abraham came forth our Messiah 
How is it possible? How is it possible that they will be lost? But Christ is their only hope. The one they slew 2,000 years ago, he's their only hope. The blood that he shed on that cross at their hand is their only hope. And instead of the churches, the so-called Protestant churches encouraging these Jews and hoping for these Jews to build a temple and begin animal sacrifices again, they ought to be preaching of Jesus and him crucified. They should be saying, you've already slain your lamb. Confess your sins to him. He stands at the right hand of the Father now making intercession for us all. What good are your animal sacrifices? What good is your temple when it will remain desolate? What hope is there in the blood of lambs and goats? and bulls when Jesus paid it all. Back to you, Yerk. Yeah, Tom, it all comes back exactly to what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 43. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. And he is the one they built the temple for. And who builds this temple? The Roman Catholic Church. Because that's something the Jews and the Roman Catholic Church have in common. They deny Jesus. Because the Jesus taught by the Roman Catholic Church is the Tammuz of Babylon and not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. And because the Jews have been misled by what Jesus called scribes and Pharisees, they also did not receive him. And there they have their motivation to rebuild this temple and to wait for another Jesus to come to do the ultimate sacrifice again. But that Jesus that is coming there is the Pope who calls himself Jesus hidden under a veil of flesh. Who calls himself the Vicar of Christ. Who calls himself God on earth. Who speaks blasphemous works in the name of the Holy Spirit who is the intermediator, who is the comforter that Jesus left when he ascended to heaven. It all comes back to John 5.43. What are your thoughts on that, Tom? Well, you took the words right out of my mouth. They're preparing to receive a false messiah. One who champions himself around the world as being a universal peacemaker the moral authority of the world. It's, uh, it's beginning to shape up. 
to an abomination of all abominations. And uh, there is still so much hope in the churches that some, somehow God will use this to redeem the Jews, and I see nothing in it but their destruction. This false Christ, this so-called vicar of Christ, already holds the deed to Temple Mount. He's always in secret negotiations with the hierarchy of the Jewish nation, the government of Israel, and uh, I see it as their undoing. I don't, I don't see any hope for someone who places their hope in the man of sin, the son of perdition, the little horn of Daniel, the papacy, as having any hope for redemption. But I am a realist. I, uh, I'm not one to take after fables. And my hope for the Jews is a real hope. But they'll never find it in this temple. They'll never find it in their sacrifices. And they'll certainly never find it in the papacy or the Roman Catholic Church. I just wanted to say, the Jews don't find it in their rebuilt temple, and the Catholics won't find it in the church they attend every Sunday. That's right. They won't find salvation in their Eucharist any more than the Jews will find salvation in their animal sacrifices. There is no more sacrifice for sin. Christ is it. And, uh... Yeah, we have the choice either to accept Jesus' sacrifice or to reject it. That's the way I see it. And with the whole teaching starting in 1590 by Rabira of the futurist agenda the Roman Catholic Church came out with because they wanted to take away the focus on the Pope being the Antichrist as being identified by all the reformers at that time. Yeah. All the people err today. Yeah. And it leads them into the damnation that ultimately will let them state Jesus Christ has never come. They will all agree with the Jewish way of thinking who denied Jesus, as I just read from John 5:43, denying him that has come to, who has come 2,000 years ago and fulfilled the law, the sacrificial law, completely and abolished it. Jesus said himself that he has come to abolish the law, uh, that to, to fulfill the law, sorry. To fulfill the law. Yes. To, to fulfill the law and not to abolish. By abolish also, of course, we have to make sure that we understand that the moral law, giving out Mount Sinai to Moses, the Ten Commandments, still stand. And there comes one of the biggest attacks of them all. That a lot of people say, 
okay, the Ten Commandments still stands, but the Fourth Commandment, Jesus did away with. Only the Fourth Commandment he did away with. All the other nine still stand. But as far as I remember, God said when he gave these laws that his laws will never pass away. And there's the great error that lies in the belief system of the people today. Okay, which, I still... Which, I, which, Sabbath, which Sabbath did Jesus and the apostles keep? The one that God specified in the commandments. Remember the seventh day to keep it holy. That's the day that Jesus kept. That's the day the disciples kept. That's the day the apostles kept. It was a day of rest. You know, someone on this earth called the papacy claims the power, the divine right to change or to even do away with God's law. But I'll tell you what has come to me is that that very law was the law that Christ had to obey perfectly in order to qualify for the Lamb that would redeem the world. No man, no man, no mere man has kept that law. There are none righteous, no, not one, except Jesus. He kept that law perfectly both the letter and the spirit of the law. That's what qualified him to be our Savior. That's what qualified him to be our sacrifice. That's what qualified him to wash away our sins and to redeem us and to reconcile us to God. Now, if anyone were to change even a jot or a tittle of that moral law, they would literally be changing the standard by which Christ redeemed us. And not only Catholics have changed the fourth commandment, but Protestants. The whole world keeps a different Sabbath. People say, well, we we keep Sunday because Jesus arose from the dead on Sunday. Well, what makes that Sunday? What makes Sunday the Sabbath? What if Jesus did raise from the dead on Sunday? Does that change God's law? Look, the, the Scripture is full of examples of how the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites, violated God's Sabbath. They trampled their feet all over the Sabbath. They profaned it. They didn't keep it holy. As a matter of fact, they started to worship like the, the, the uh, Babylonians. And they didn't regard God's Sabbath at all. And they were punished. People argue with me all the time. We don't keep the seventh-day Sabbath anymore. 
because Jesus raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And the Sabbath was changed. I asked the listeners, listen to what God said. God rested the seventh day, and he hallowed it. In other words, he made it holy. Now, if God rested the seventh day, and he made it holy, and only he can make anything holy, because only he is holy, what man thinks it within his right to change that day? That man who thinks of himself as God on earth. That's right. That's right. And what did he say in the commandments? Remember the seventh day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Neither thou, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. And he rested the seventh day, and he hallowed it. Remember the seventh day. That's what he said. Now, for those who believe that somehow, somewhere, God changed the sanctity of that seventh day, that hallowed character that he gave the seventh day, the day that he rested at creation, because he claims to be the creator. He created the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. He said, the earth is mine and the fullness thereof. And he set forth the language that cannot be disputed in the commandments, the fourth commandment. Find for me anywhere in the New Testament, either before Christ's crucifixion or after, any words with that specificity, any words with that much power and authority that designate Sunday the Sabbath, you won't find it. Can you find anything associated with Sunday having the same authority as remember the seventh day to keep it holy? Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, neither thou nor thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth and all that in them is, and he rested the seventh day and he hallowed it. Can you find anything in the New Testament of that much specificity and power and authority justifying a different day than the seventh day? Why, there's not even a hint. You see, there's a breach in the law now. And not only have the Roman Catholics changed the Sabbath, as Constantine did in 321 A.D., 
But they completely eliminated the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy to the thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments, that keep my commandments. Rome just eliminated the second commandment. That's why you see images and idols. Even in your own neighborhood, drive down the street, you'll see somebody with a statue of Mary out in the front yard or a statue of Jesus. This arrogant antichrist power in Rome thinks to change God's times and laws, but he's a liar because he worships the dragon and the father of lies. That's the error of Christianity, both Catholic and Protestant. And God won't change one dot jot or tittle of his law because that law was the standard by which our savior was marked it was the standard that he had to fulfill perfectly to qualify as the sinless spotless lamb of almighty god had he one spot or blemish Had he ever sinned, he would never have been qualified to die for you and me. And that's just one of the ways that the Roman Catholic Church and the Christian world rejects the Messiah. They've changed the standard by which he saved us. As though they could... And the whole world follows after the beast in Rome. And they defend Sunday with their own blood if they have to. Condemning anybody who speaks of the seventh day as a cultist. How will they answer to a holy God? Who never makes mistakes. Who never changes a thing that comes forth from his mouth. They call me a cultist. Wicked sinners, that's what they are. It's more important to them to have popularity and friends in this apostate Christian world than to stand with the truth against the multitudes. Shame on them. Yeah, thank you, Tom. I'm going to take over here because you're absolutely right with what you've said there. And we could go on for hours and hours and do a (laughs) rebroadcast on what we did when we stated why didn't the reformers go all the way 
and saw the leap that, he, that they left in their teachings in that time because they didn't emphasize to keep all the Ten Commandments, of which, of course, the fourth, keeping the Sabbath, is one, and even so, a very important one. But instead of going on that, I have prepared another article for me to read and for you to comment, please, on. And you can also do that by interrupting me, even though the article is not very long, but I think there is really something that you, uh, that you want to say at that moment when I'm reading it, then just please interrupt me. The article comes from Entertainment Gist in Nigeria. Shocking. There is no hellfire. Adam and Eve are not real. Pope Francis exposes. And this comes from Sunday, December 29, 2013. Quote, One man who is out so open, many old secrets in the Catholic Church is Pope Francis. Some of the beliefs that are held in the Church, but contrary to the loving nature of God, are now being set aside by the Pope, who was recently named the Man of the Year by Time magazine. Yes, he was named Man of the Year. He should have been named Man of Sin by Time magazine. This Man of Sin, this Son of Perdition, this little horn, this Antichrist of the Bible, is revealing secrets about the Roman Catholic Church. They no longer believe in a literal hell. They no longer believe in creation. They no longer believe that God created the heavens and the earth and the sea, and the fountains of waters. Do you want to ecumenically reunite with this Antichrist church who is now out in the open? This Pope Francis, who is loved and called Man of the Year by Time magazine, is now trashing the Word of God, openly denying God created the heavens and the earth openly denying that there is any recompense for sin. There's no hell to be shunned, and there's literally no heaven to be gained. Because if God did not create the heavens and the earth, there's no heaven for us to covet. If there's no hell, then there's no fear of God, is there? And there's no need for Christ. There's no need for Christ. Absolutely, he redeemed us from our sins. So saith God in the scripture. But if there's no hell to keep us from, then he died in vain, didn't he? Yeah. There was no redemption necessary, was there? You see how they reject Christ? They reject Christ, and they reject the Father, too. They reject his Sabbath. They reject his law. And they kill his people they have for 2,000 years. This Pope Francis, who's opened the door of the Roman Catholic Church to atheists, well, we come to that in the article, Tom. Oh, let me ahead. just read a little. Let, let me just read a little bit on, and uh, I'm looking forward to your comments. But don't take away from my reading. <laughs> <laughs> come on. In his latest revelations, Pope Francis said, "Quote: Through humility, soul searching, 
and prayerful contemplation. Uh, isn't that contemplative prayer? We have gained a new understanding of certain dogmas. The church no longer believes in a literal hell where people suffer. This doctrine is incompatible with the infinite love of God. God is not a judge, but a friend and a lover of humanity. God seeks not to condemn, but only to embrace. Like the fable of Adam and Eve, we see hell as a literary device. Hell is merely a metaphor for the isolated soul, which like all souls, ultimately will be united in love with God. End quote. Please well, join Adam, in. Adam and Eve was a fable, he says. Yeah. Like the fable of Adam and Eve. It's just a fable, he says. Probably the whole Bible is to him a fable. Well, if Adam and Eve was a fable, surely the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a fable too, right? Probably. So what redemption is there for man? Why is one even needed? That's what this is all about. It's anti-Christian. If Adam and Eve was a fable... There's no literal hell. And creation is just a literary device. Then what faith is there? Well, creation what? also is a fable to the Pope, right? Yes. He believes in evolution. Yeah. He says hell is merely a metaphor for the isolated soul. One here and one there. One who's making up things as he goes along, right? Hell is just merely a metaphor. And then he says, which like all souls ultimately will be united in God with love. So that means you can do whatever you want. You can be such a bad person. It doesn't count because ultimately you will be united in love with God. Yeah. So there's no, no matter what you law. say, no matter what you think, no matter what you've done here in this life, there's no such thing as sin, Eric. That's what he's saying. Well, that's doing away with all the Ten Commandments, the whole yeah, world. all of them. Yeah. Well, what did Jesus say? You know, you violate one of the commandments, you're guilty of all. So the Pope's just taking him literally and throwing out all the law. I mean, <laughs> look. Time Magazine calls him the man of the year. He just got you a get-out-of-hell card for free. Just all you got to do, ladies and gentlemen, all you got to do is just throw your Bible in the dump and follow the Pope. He's got all the answers, but you won't believe a thing he says if you read that Bible. What a horror. Continue. <clears throat> In a shocking speech that is reverberating across the world, Pope Francis declared that, quote, All religions are true because they are true in the hearts of all those who believe in them. What does the Bible say about the human heart? The human heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
don't judge a man by what he puts into his mouth, but what comes out of his mouth, right. that comes from, from the heart. Yep. That's what he said. What other kind of truth is there? In the past, the church has been harsh on those it deemed morally wrong or sinful. Today, we no longer judge. Like a loving father, we never condemn our children. Our church is big enough for heterosexuals and sodomites, reading homosexuals, for the pro-life and the pro-choice, for conservatives and liberals, even communists are welcome and have joined us. We all love and worship the same God. That's right. We all love and worship the Pope as God. On That's her. right. That's the way I look at it. Dude. That's exactly what he means with this. Because when we all love the Pope, we all love and worship the same God. And that is what is going to unite all the churches. Where, of course, the subject of our broadcast, the Catholic Lutheran Accord, is one part of that. Uniting the Protestant Lutheran Church again under the wings of Rome. Just to make a little link to our broadcast subject anyway. But I continue reading. This was the end of quote from Pope Francis. Wait a minute. He said, he said all religions are true. Did you know atheism is a religion? Of course. Yeah. That's right. Atheism is a religion. You know, your God is your own belly. Whatever you feel in your heart or in your belly is true. That's what's true. Evolution is a religion, too. That's right. Evolution is a religion. Science is a religion. But this pope has explicitly in, uh, invited and opened the doors of the Roman Catholic Church to atheists. He said it with his own mouth. What does the Bible say? He that believes there is no God is a fool. Only a fool says in his heart there is no God. That's what it says in the Scripture. So the Roman Catholic Church has opened its doors to fools. Uh, anybody with even a cursory familiarity with the Bible has to know that this article is apostasy from beginning to end. It is the repudiation of Christianity. Now, I've been preaching for years that the Roman Catholic Church, by no stretch of the imagination, can be called Christian. It is the synagogue of Satan. Now, people have argued with me about that. But certainly after reading this article, and you're just getting started, by reading this article, you have to agree with me. It is indeed the synagogue of Satan. The Bible plainly says they worship the dragon, and they do. The Pope is becoming a god because he's liberating every antichrist in the world to follow him, and there'll be no consequence. Well, the point, Tom, when I might say that is he doesn't speak of the church of the God of the Bible because he says our church is big enough for heterosexuals and homosexuals. Our church, that is not the church of the God of the Bible. That is not the church of God the Creator. 
and the Son, Jesus Christ. That is the Roman Catholic pagan church built on the foundations of Babylon. And that church is big enough for heterosexuals and sodomites, pro-life, pro-choice, conservatives, liberals, communists, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, murderers. Because there is no sin. The Pope, at the very least, has to open the door for sodomites. Otherwise, he'd have to close the doors of the church to most of his priesthood. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well, as long as we can hear and there have a laugh. You know, when you analyze the stuff that he says and you really get to the bottom of it, I just don't understand how people can be so dumped down that they don't see the the sarcastic in it. I mean, the Pope, to me, the more that I read what he says and states, he is, to me, the biggest comedian that's on on, on this earth. George Carlin was nothing compared to Pope Francis. But the New York Times, or the Times Magazine, didn't call him Comedian of the Year. They called him the Man of the Year. (laughs) I'd call him the Man of Sin. That's what he is. I'm going to continue reading the article here. In the last six months, Catholic cardinals, bishops, and theologians have been deliberating in Vatican City in discussing the future of the Church and redefining long-held Catholic doctrines and dogmas. The Third Vatican Council is the largest and most important since the Second Vatican Council was concluded in 1962. Uh, This is wrong because it was concluded in 1965. It ran between 1965 and 1962 and 1965. So there the article is wrong. Pope Francis convened the new council to, quote, finally finished the work of the Second Vatican Council, unquote. Well, that brings us again back to the documents of the Catholic Lutheran Accord later on. The Third Vatican Council concluded with Pope Francis announcing that Catholicism is now a, quote, modern and reasonable religion which was undergone evolutionary changes. The time has come to abandon all intolerance. We must recognize that religious truth evolves and changes. Truth is not absolute or set in stone. Even atheists acknowledge the divine. Through acts of love and charity, the atheist acknowledges God as well and redeems his own soul becoming an active participant in the redemption of humanity. End quote. Redeems well, his to hear what you have soul. to say now. <laughs> the atheist redeems his own soul. What, what, what could one even... I mean, does this even require a comment? The atheist redeems his own soul through acts of love and charity becoming an active participant in the redemption of humanity 
An atheist becomes a participant in the redemption of humanity. There's only one redemption for humanity, and it's Christ. And he bled and died to purchase us. But now an atheist can do this, according to this pope. An atheist, through his love and charity, redeems not only his own soul, but he becomes an active participant in the redemption of humanity, which rhymes with insanity. God has this church in derision. And if there was ever any hope that the Roman Catholic Church was a Christian, albeit wayward Christian church, can now be easily dispelled. Synagogue of Satan is the only thing that qualifies as a name for this church. And my guess is many of those who have all their lives called themselves Roman Catholics might be ripe for evangelization unto Christ. And that ought to be our ministry. Well, there's one sentence here that I think people will slightly read over, but it's one of the most important ever, he said. Quote, truth is not absolute or set in stone. So the stone tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain where God wrote his law in stone with his own finger is not truth. That is what Pope Francis means by this. Do you agree? That's the way I see it. That's the way I see it. Yeah. It's a veiled reference to the Ten Commandments. I mean, after all, they're throwing away the gospel. They're throwing away hell. They're throwing away salvation in Christ. Uh, What do they need the Ten Commandments for? I mean, if, if, uh, if Christ is not the Redeemer, the redemption of humanity, then we certainly don't need the Ten Commandments, which were the very standard by which Christ qualified to be the Messiah and Savior of humanity. And Christ also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except by me. Yeah. So truth is not absolute, so that means Jesus is not absolute. Yeah. In the eyes of the Pope, of course. Yeah. He said there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. This Pope has completely reduced that to rubble. Well, yeah, he is really doing what is prophesied in Revelation 13, speaking blasphemous words. Certainly. Fulfillment of Bible prophecy in the very words of this Pope. The article continues, One statement in the Pope's speech has sent traditionalists into a fit of confusion and hysteria. Quote, God is changing and evolving as we are, for God lives in us and in our hearts. When we spread love and kindness in the world, 
we touch our own divinity and recognize it. The Bible is a beautiful holy book, but like all great and ancient works, some passages are outdated. Some even call for intolerance or judgment. The time has come to see these verses as later interp uh, interpolations contrary to the message of love and truth, which otherwise radi radiates through Scripture. In accordance with our new understanding, we will begin to ordain women as cardinals, bishops, and priests. In the future, it is my hope that we will have a woman pope one day. Let no door be closed to women that is open to men. End quote. A few cardinals in the Catholic Church are against Pope Francis' latest declarations. Watch out for the report. Well, I say watch out for the Inquisition that will hit these cardinals. Tom, you have some final comments on this article? Yes, in totality, what this has done is put the spotlight of world retribution against anyone who holds out for the scriptures. Because everything, virtually everything that is said in this speech is contradicted by the scriptures. This is a declaration of open warfare against anyone who holds tenaciously to God's word. Anyone who says that the Bible and the Bible alone is my authority for faith and morals. It's a direct condemnation of the Protestant Reformation. It's a direct condemnation against the Bible, the Holy Word of God. It's a direct condemnation against Christ and against the Father. It's a complete repudiation of Christianity. The target of this speech is Christianity. It's actually a confirmation of what is written in the Catholic Encyclopedia, Volume 12, page 496. That reads, The supremacy of the Bible as source of faith is unhistorical, illogical, fatal to the virtue of faith, and destructive of unity. It is unhistorical. Everything Pope Francis said here in this article that I just read absolutely confirms this dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. And he starts his last statement by saying, God is changing and evolving as we are. God never changes. I change not, he said. That is the only thing that God and the Roman Catholic Church have in common. Because Rome never changes either. Is God a man that he should make a mistake, make an error? Is God a man that he should correct himself? Of course not. God said, I change not. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet this Pope says, 
the Word of God has to evolve just like we do. Truth has to evolve just like we do. Tell you what, the Roman Catholic Church is in upheaval because there's a huge segment of Roman Catholic believers that are called traditionalists. The traditionalists in the Roman Catholic Church, the extreme right wing of the Roman Catholic Church, is ready to return to rigid traditionalist right wing beliefs and practices if this regime that has taken over the Vatican can be overthrown. And that too will spell inquisition to anyone who holds strictly to the Word of God. Whether the extreme left is in control of the Roman Catholic Church, as we see in Pope Francis, or whether the extreme right is in control of the Roman Catholic Church, both spell intolerance for the Word of God and those who hold to it. Nothing changes. Rome's target never changes. It's always the Protestant Reformation and the Word of God. His target never changes. He seeks to replace Christ with Antichrist. That's what that church is all about. That's right. I think that was a very interesting article to start the broadcast today. If it's all right with you, Tom, I would like now to turn to our Catholic Lutheran Accord document and uh, continue reading where we left off last week, if that's okay with you. Okay. We are continuing on page 7 of the PDF, uh, and that has a title that is on, on the bottom of the page, and it's titled, Manifested in Scripture, Missing in the Joint Declaration. What precisely is omitted in the Joint Declaration is, quote, the righteousness which is of God by faith, unquote. Quote, the righteousness of the one, and quote, the obedience of the one, end quote, and quote, the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, end quote. The verdict act of God in declaring that the sinner is acquitted and counted righteous because of the obedience and death of Jesus Christ alone is not contained in the joint declaration. That which is proposed in its place is a combination of some biblical truths, such as grace alone, faith alone, with the old lying definition of justification being seen as a quality of the soul within the believer. Because true righteousness is of and from God, it is absolutely perfect. The one-time act of God in justifying a sinner in Christ Jesus is perfect. Because man in himself cannot be perfect, righteousness can only be communicated through impute to imputation or reckoning. God's provision of the perfect righteousness of Christ is acquired by faith alone. This faith in itself is not seen. Rather, it is, quote, the evidence of things not seen, unquote. The perfect, quote, righteousness of God without the law, unquote, is not to be seen on earth. The fruitfulness of such righteousness is indeed seen. Nevertheless, the righteousness itself is in heavenly places in Christ. What is proposed to be justification in the official common statement on the joint declaration is to be seen here on earth 
and not the scriptural declarative justification, quote-unquote, in heaven. Rather, justification is presented as taking place, quote-unquote, on earth, in the believer, as, for example, in Annex Paragraph 2, quote, Together we confess, by grace alone, in faith in Christ's saving work, and not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit, who renews our hearts while equipping and calling us to good works. Unquote. Just stop reading here for a second, because this is exactly the sentence that Tony Palmer cited. When you watch the video where Tony Palmer um, is in that congregation of Kenneth Copeland Ministries that I made a video on, uh, Luther's protest is over, question mark, where I analyze that video and go into what he says there. And this is exactly the thing that he states in that video. I will continue only two little paragraphs, Tom, and then you can go and analyze with me what I've just read. The simple truth of Scripture is that God never accepts an individual as such. Rather, he is accepted only in the Beloved, in the righteousness of the one Christ Jesus, that is, in the righteousness of faith. Receiving the Holy Spirit and the renewal of hearts is the old confusion of justification with sanctification. Because the purpose of these statements is to define justification, such confusion is calculated deceit. The phrases, quote-unquote, being made righteous and, quote-unquote, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit, both make room for what is to be wrongly concluded meaning that justification is, quote-unquote, within the person, and the quality of the soul, quote-unquote, within the believer. In essence, however, the biblical truth is this, the perfect righteousness of Christ, quote-unquote, imputed to the believer, is solely an act of God in Christ. That's right. Contrary to what the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans have decided together, justification is instant. Justification is the imputation of righteousness. For God reckons the man righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ's blood covers our sins, he sees no sin, and imputed, and righteousness is imputed to us. It's not something that grows over time. Sanctification grows over time. Justification, salvation, in other words, is instantaneous, and it is an act of the Lord. We're simply moved from one side of the ledger to the other from the credit side of the ledger to the debit side. It's God who writes in the book of life. Not man. It's not a process. It takes place by the judgment of Almighty God. It's instantaneous. But the Roman Catholic Church has never taught this. It still does not believe in justification by grace through faith alone. 
and all of the wordsmithing and artful deceptions of the Roman Catholic Church cannot deceive those who are truly redeemed and called of God. There's no way that they can have it both ways. And the Bible is very explicit about when and how we are saved. And it doesn't need the Roman Catholic Church or the Lutherans to redefine the process of salvation, the work, rather, of salvation, which was Christ. Now, this idea of being justified indicates that it's a process. It's not a process. And uh, Richard Bennett is right to point out the craftiness in the language used in this doctrine, in this document. The planned deceit, the calculated deceit, the artful confusion that has come about in this document. Richard Bennett has analyzed the work the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification and found all sorts of satanic subtlety. And by this subtlety, by this artful confusion, by this calculated deceit, we know the author of this work. And it's not God. And how that church that is named after Martin Luther, who said, by revelation of God, that salvation is by grace through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Not of works. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not a process. It's not something you earn. It's a gift. When someone offers you a gift, all you have to do is receive it. And that's the instant. When your name is taken from one side of the ledger and put on the other by Christ. And... uh, You talk about sophisticated sophistry, which is the title of the next portion of this document. It truly describes the artful craftiness, the Jesuitical sophistry and casuistry of the language. This document had to be written by a Jesuit. Only a Jesuit could twist the meanings of words. Only a Jesuit could confuse the simple truth to this degree. In a nutshell, what we need to tell the listeners is that this joint declaration on the doctrine of justification proves only one thing. Satan has never changed, just like the Roman Catholic Church never changes. And uh, subtlety still describes her and him, and we ought not to touch it with a 10-foot pole. If you are a member of an ecumenical church, you need to leave the church. And start come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. 
that you partake not of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues because her sins have reached unto heaven and God hath remembered her iniquities. God hasn't forgotten her iniquities. God has remembered her iniquities, each and every one. And they've stacked up all the way to heaven. And they've even drugged some of the saints with them. You've got to come out of these churches, these ecumenical churches. They're on the primrose path to perdition. Judgment is going to begin in the house of the Lord, and that's just exactly where the most corruption is, right in the house of Almighty God. And the Lutherans need to return to Lutheranism, Protestantism, and begin once again to protest this subtle serpent in Rome. Condemn this joint declaration on the doctrine of justification, There is no harmony between this document and the written word of Almighty God. No harmony at all. There's no harmony between righteousness and unrighteousness. We are to rebuke unrighteousness. And I rebuke this document. Back to you, Yerk. Sophisticated sophistry, as you mentioned, is the title of the next paragraph I'm reading. The official statement ratifying the joint declaration states, justification takes place, quote-unquote, by grace alone, by faith alone. The person is justified, quote-unquote, apart from works, as stated in Romans 3, 28. Quote, grace creates faith not only when faith begins in the person, but as long as faith lasts, unquote. This is from Thomas Aquinas. And, See, um, he's called the angelic doctor of the Roman Catholic Church. The angelic doctor, even in his title, he's blasphemer. Thomas Aquinas, one of the most crafty artificers of language ever in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. And this, 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 This statement, justification takes place by grace alone, by faith alone, the person is justified apart from works. Sounds like Protestantism, doesn't it? Sure does. It sounds like Protestantism. But the devil is in the details. And let me tell you, there's plenty of details. This is a satanic document. This could have been written by Satan himself. Well, he uses his minions to write it. As God put the words into the apostles and into the um, into the prophets' mouths, Satan is putting his words into his minions of the Catholic Church and the Jesuits who are doing his work here. And by reading this document, this becomes also clear when, some, when one takes the time to read it and analyze it. This is what Richard Bennett did. He really studied this document and took it out. And this sophisticated sophistry that we are dealing here with right now is a prime example of how he analyzed this document and showed us 
what on the one hand they say and on the other hand they really mean. It is not only by quoting the Bible that you speak righteous, it is by the way that it is being interpreted. And the interpretation is not left to us, but the interpretation of the Bible is let the Bible interpret itself, and no man interpreted itself. It's the same problem that, um, that you can have with footnotes and everything putting in the Bible. These are written by man and not by God. So let the Bible explain itself and not some man. Because when you do that, you will fall for the sophistry and the casuistry of the Jesuits, as I explained in this article here. Okay, I'm going to continue reading now. In Scripture, justification is a one-time declarative act in which God pronounces the sinner just or righteous, as, it's, as it is stated. Quote, God, not imputing their trespasses unto them, unquote. Moreover, as the Apostle specifically states, quote, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, unquote. The Joint Declaration and the Official Common Statement on the Joint Declaration use the noun justification and carefully avoid the verb justifies. The Greek word justifies, legisomai, means to count esteem, to impute, to number, to reason, and to reckon. It is a verb denoting a one-time action. The repetition of the noun justification in the Joint Declaration and in the official common statement on the Joint Declaration conveys the concept of a quality within a person that totally disagree, disregards the scripture. Not mentioning, quote-unquote, imputed righteousness and continually speaking of, quote-unquote, justification is seductive sophistry. Thus, in the official common statement's endorsement of the joint declaration, the basis for the gospel is given as within man rather than the perfect righteousness of the God-man, Christ Jesus. This is speaking against God and is worse than anything proposed by Israel or the Pharisees. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ therefore apply, quote, For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Unquote. And this last quote was taken from Matthew 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 13. Tom, you have anything to add here to this last uh, two paragraphs I just read? No, I, I, uh, I think it's very interesting to point out, to reiterate, that there's much use in this doctrine of, of the word justification. But as Richard Bennett <clears throat> carefully points out here, they never equate justification with imputed righteousness. That's what justification means. That's the biblical definition of justification, imputed righteousness. And there's a very crafty reason why they do not speak of justification and imputed righteousness at the same time. It's simply because these Jesuits have their own definition, a different definition for the word justification. Their justification is not imputed righteousness, because imputed righteousness means that it is strictly an act of Christ. 
where he simply imputes righteousness to us in an instantaneous fashion. When, when God has chosen and called us, and we reach out and receive that gift, which no man without the help of God would ever do, God can impute unto us righteousness. God can account for us righteousness. Now, when God looks at us, all he sees is his son's own blood. Righteous blood. Without spot or blemish. Capable of washing away all of our sins. At that point, when righteousness is imputed to us, we are justified. And there's a very specific reason, a very calculated reason why this document, although it uses the term justification throughout the document, it never equates justification with imputed righteousness. Because imputed righteousness can only mean one thing. It was a reckoning of God. It was a reckoning from heaven. It was an instantaneous reckoning, a reckoning that God, uh, that man had nothing whatsoever to do with. The Bible plainly says salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. That is the problem that the Vatican has with justification. So it's very, very important to understand the craftiness. And Richard, is, it's just wonderful to point this out. Back to you. Yeah, thank you, Tom, for the explanation there. The next paragraph is titled The Mindset of Rome in the Joint Declaration. Well, if you haven't understood that up to now, then maybe this little paragraph will help you. <laughs> The Roman Catholic Church cannot conceive of the act of justifying in which man remains a sinner. Catholic theology understands justifying as justification, something that God graciously pours into a man's heart, displacing sin and sinfulness in the process. Biblically speaking, however, justifying righteousness, i.e. righteousness that can justify, is something that always resides in the person of Christ alone. The imputation of this righteousness is what makes a believer acceptable to God. As long as the believer lives, he is in himself guilty, but in Christ he is righteous and accounted precious in God's sight. See, if, if that is the way the Roman Catholic Church would eventually believe, as is taught in the Bible, then there would be no justification for a pope. There would be no justification for transubstantiation. There would be no justification for the mass. There would be no justification for auricular confession to a priest. There would be no justification for the priestly absolution of our sins. You see, the Roman Catholic Church in order to justify itself in the world, has to take away salvation from God and put it in the Roman Catholic Church. 
And they've simply replaced Christ with their own system of redemption. And it's a works-based redemption. It's no redemption at all. We are found righteous because we are covered in Christ's righteousness. A righteousness that is imputed to us. It's not earned. It's a gift. And God gives it. And simply imputes righteousness to us. Yeah, we only just got to have to do is stretch out your hands to receive the gift. That's right. It's and it is God, even in that act of receiving that gift, it is in God that we are called and moved to will and to do his good pleasure. Even the very will to accept that gift is not of a human origin. That's forget that's a gift also from God. Faith is a gift. Man has nothing to do with it. That's what the Bible says. That's what the King James Bible says. And, of course, now you must understand what all the other Bibles say. They leave room for justification to be a process. A process entered into when one becomes a Roman Catholic. Yeah, the other Bibles give room for interpretation, Yeah, which the King James Bible does not. And to understand all these other corrupt Bibles, you need a man to explain what it means. Whereas when you stick to the true word of God that is saved in the King James Bible, you only need to rely on God's word because that Bible is self-explanatory. It's the only Bible that, that interprets itself. It's the only Bible available that interprets itself. All the other Bibles require a priest or a pastor to interpret it for you, as if the Holy Ghost is not available to you. It's only available to him, and only he can tell you what the Scripture really means. It replaces the Word of God with the artifices of man. Replacement theology, right? Yeah. In a sense, yes. Yeah. After all, doesn't the counterfeit Christ seek to replace the true? And so do their Bibles seek to replace the true. No. Oh. I'll uh, send it back to you then, Eric. Okay, the next paragraph reads, an astonishing quote from Aquinas. It is surprising. Uh, it is a surprising thing that a section of Thomas Aquinas' teaching is affirmed in, his, in this final word confirming the conclusion of the joint declaration and the official common statement. The question Aquinas was answering in... Uh, Sir Thomas 2244 at 3, nice quote there, <laughs> is, quote, whether formless faith can become formed or formed faith formless, unquote. 
Did you understand that, Tom? No, it certainly doesn't come from the scriptures. It comes <laughs> straight from the pit of hell and up through Thomas Aquinas' mouth. And probably nobody else but him can understand what he just that's said. No so doubt. I'm going to read it again for anybody who didn't understand it. That's about. why they call him the angelic doctor. Because only Thomas Aquinas can explain the drivel that comes out of his mouth. Like he was speaking in tongues, but understandably, right? Right. Whether formless faith can become formed or formed faith formless. Well, I can read that a thousand times. I still won't understand it, but that's Jesuitical causistry and sophistry. The abstruseness of this question itself gives one a taste of the intricacies of scholastic theology. Why quote from a most intricate question in Aquinas rather than simply giving the words of Scripture that are referred to in the brackets? The Romans Chapter 3, verse 28, text given in brackets before the Aquinas quote states, quote, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, unquote. Well, I'll be damned. I understood this. The word conclude in this text is the Greek word logizomita, meaning we esteem, impute, or reckon, quote, that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, unquote. Had the scripture been cited rather than the words of Aquinas, righteousness reckoned, quote, unquote, would have been obvious and the sophistry exposed. The official statement, however, chose the words of Aquinas to suppress biblical truths and to uphold the concept of inherent righteousness. The statement agreed, to, uh, agreed on says, Justification takes place, quote-unquote, by grace alone. By faith alone, the person is justified, quote-unquote, apart from works. Quote, grace creates faith not only when faith begins in a person, but as long as faith lasts. That's from Thomas Aquinas again. Biblically speaking, it ought to say, now listen, the righteousness of Christ is credited to the believer, quote-unquote, by grace alone, and by faith alone. And thus the person is justified in Christ alone, quote-unquote, apart from works. As is stated by the Apostle Paul, quote, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, unquote. Romans 3, verse 28. And the key word is credited. The righteousness of Christ, only Christ was righteous, the righteousness of Christ is credited to the believer. That's just another way of saying imputed righteousness. When righteousness is imputed to us, righteousness is credited to us. We are counted righteous, and God does the accounting, and he doesn't hire anybody else to do his accounting for him, not even Thomas Aquinas. Back to you, Yerk. Cancerous cuisine is the next paragraph called. 
Earlier, in the same work cited, Aquinas taught that grace is a quality of the soul. In the quote-unquote treatise of grace, unquote, uh, yeah, quote-unquote, he asked the question, quote, is grace a quality of the soul, unquote. In the body of his article, he cited Aristotle's physics saying, quote, motion is the act of the mover in the moved, unquote. Then in reply, object one, he states, quote, grace as a quality is said to act upon the soul, not after the manner of an, uh, of an efficient cause, but after the manner of a formal cause. As whiteness makes a thing white and justice just, unquote. The whole idea of grace being moral justice located inside a person rather than God imputing Christ's righteousness to each person whom he places in Christ blatantly contradicts biblical truths. Such teaching is a negation of consistent biblical teaching of positional legal righteousness in Christ alone. I just want to go back to in, in the beginning because he said he cited Aristotle's physics. Aristotle was living, I think, about 2,500 years ago, so in the time before Jesus Christ, if I'm not mistaken, and in Greece, a heathen nation, never knew of the gospel, never knew the word of God. Right. They quote Aristotle, who was not saved. So the question for every Bible-believing Christian when reading this should be, why is Thomas Aquinas citing a person who has never heard of God, of the Bible, who has never heard of the prophets, and of course, because he lived before Christ, never heard the gospel? I've got a better question. Okay. Why would any church that calls itself Christian cite Thomas Aquinas? was just as unsaved as was Aristotle. Listen, we have to know something about the word grace. Grace is unmerited favor with God. You can't earn it. It's a gift. Grace is unmerited favor. That's the imputation of righteousness. And it is obtained through faith. Yes, I believe Jesus was the spotless lamb. He was the one who performed God's law with perfection, never once sinning against the perfect law of God. The perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice. And he simply bore my sins upon his body, the sinful, the sinless for the sinful. He died for me. He died in my stead. He was the only one qualified to bear upon his body my sins. And because of his act, grace is imparted from God, an unmerited work. Uh, any, no merit on my part. Certainly, it is the merit of Christ. Christ earned my salvation for me. He performed the law perfectly. He obeyed God without error. And when I accept him as my propitiation, then God gives me unmerited favor. 
it happens in an instant. That's justification by grace. Unmerited favor with God through faith because I believed, and even that is a gift, the gift of faith, the faith to believe that Jesus paid it all without anything on my part to contribute. That's what Rome tries to confuse because it's the only system that God has devised to redeem us. For Satan to destroy the the mechanism by which he has redeemed man, if Satan can destroy that by replacing it with another system, an ineffectual system like the Roman Catholic system, then God has cheated, Christ has cheated out of his inheritance. There would be no bride for Christ. He he would have died in vain. It is absolutely essential that the synagogue of Satan destroy this, this redemption in Christ and replace it with something ineffectual. As high sounding as it is, as artfully crafty as it is, it's a counterfeit system. It's a trap. And the world would rather believe in this Roman Catholic system of works and auricular confession and transubstantiation and uh, a repeated sacrifice of Christ in the Mass and, and, and the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. They'd much rather believe in that than they would that they had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with their own salvation, that it was a gift. You see, that's the pride in man. That he seeks to claim his own righteousness. Seeks to work and to achieve his own righteousness. When it's impossible. It's virtually impossible. It could only be achieved by a spotless one. And that's what they hate more than anything, that Jesus was the one. And it's completely out of our hands. And they can't exercise their pride anymore. That's why the the Bible values humility. The Bible values a contrite heart. That's why the Bible values grace. But Rome is proud of her system of having achieved her own salvation. And there's no salvation in it. Only damnation. Only damnation. That's a fact. Okay, I'm going to read the last two paragraphs for today that have the title Complete Perfection in Christ, Not in the Individual. Endorsing the teaching of Aquinas 
and all such teaching in the joint declaration as justification takes place, being made righteous and we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit, is quite cleverly teaching, quote, inherent righteousness, unquote, without using those words. Such teaching opposes both the gospel and the righteousness of Christ. The distinction between the righteousness of faith or justification and the righteousness of the law, i.e. sanctification, was foundational on Luther's understanding of the gospel. After Luther, the formula of Concord of 1577 reiterated the basic biblical insights of double righteousness. This was bedrock of historical Lutheranism. It was recognized that if active righteousness or sanctification were brought into the definition of the passive righteousness by faith, then both the glory of Christ and the gospel are denied and, on re <clears throat> and one returns to the old lie of Satan that what is inside a man makes him right before God. Quote, ye shall be as gods, unquote, as in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. What Satan said, ye shall be as gods, knowing both good and evil. He that's cannot what, even make Rome, himself that's what, that's what Rome fulfills. That's what Rome's intent is. That we should be as gods, knowing both good and evil. That's New Age teaching. We are all gods, right? Certainly, yes. Rome's the author of every lie. <laughs> Satan <laughs> is the author of every lie, and they're all told and taught from the Roman Catholic Church. No doubt about it. Uh, go ahead, uh, Yerk. Okay. The written word of the Lord continually shows the believer where he or she is eternally and splendidly saved. Quote, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, unquote. The Roman Catholic Church does not rest satisfied with Christ alone. In fact, her process program nullifies the grace of God. Oh, sorry. In fact, her process program nullifies the grace of God. What is literally damning in the official common statement of the Joint Declaration is that an attempt has been made to masquerade the, effect, the perfect, imputed righteousness of Christ as inherent righteousness. What was truly biblical in Luther's understanding of imputed righteousness is now subsumed under Rome's idea of inner righteousness, the source of her power and the minds and hearts of men which power she covets. What is most serious the very truth of the gospel is thus made void. The quote-unquote inner process system is a hopeless practice born of a blasphemous idea. Rather, quote, it is God that justifies. And it quote. is God that justifies. It is God that justifies. We need to and read that point. over and over and over again till it finally sinks to the marrow of our bones. And when one really understands what is said, when we say it is God that justifieth, then the whole Roman system crumbles upon its own foundation. It is God that justifieth. I don't have anything to add right here. I just want to say that uh, we will stop reading the document right here. We still have 
two pages to go, but that will be for another broadcast because we are done almost again for two hours and we don't want to take it too long, especially with the interesting articles. <laughs> Certainly, um, the article that was read on uh, Pope Francis where he says there is no hellfire. I mean, I, I, I will put the link in the video, so please uh, look it up for yourself, read it for yourself, because this is really blasphemy from the highest. And this is, <laughs> wow, it's, um, it took my breath away when I read that, I really have to say. But that's also the same with the document of the Justified, um, uh, of the Joint Declaration of uh, Justification. It always takes my breath away, and I uh, excuse myself for when sometimes here and there I pronounce the word wrongly, but uh, you have to understand I'm not an English native speaker. I do my best, and sometimes I read a word that is not correctly so. That's why I put the text in there in the video. You can read it for yourself and then laugh at my little mistakes that I'm doing. But at least I'm doing them. And I admit them. No problem. So by this, I want to end the broadcast. And um, thank you very much, Tom, for being here today. Is there something that you want to end with? Just say it was my blessing to be here. And uh, thanks for the invitation. All right. You're very welcome for that, and I hope to see you again next week when we will continue and uh, finish the uh, analyzing of the paper that Richard Bennett so wonderfully put together to show to us what a devil, what a uh, what a what an evil document um, this Joint Declaration of the Justification that led to the Catholic Lutheran Accord in 1999 actually is. So by this, I want to end the broadcast. I want to thank you for listening and attending. Uh, listening uh, live on the broadcast or watching the video afterwards. Thank you very much. In the name of Jesus Christ, God bless you. Until the next time, bye-bye. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.